We're continuing our series uh, this week. We're a three-part series, Faith, Hope, and Love. Uh, last week, we started off with hope instead of starting off with faith. We did that on purpose, and I'll explain a little bit more why we did it that way uh, here in a moment. Um, that is the title slide from Hope. Uh, hope is highlighted there. If we can get the faith. Boom. There you go. Uh, faith, Hope, and Love. Subtitle, The Blind Man's Neighbor. Um, we're going to be talking about faith this morning. Faith is a big deal, real big deal. Um, I'm not going to go into it. We're going we're gonna to pray first over the tithe and offering. But while, while he's passing that around, I was, you know what? I'm going sh- to save that vision for, for during the sermon. Let's go ahead and pray over the tithe and offering this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to give. Lord, I pray that you would bless those that have to give this morning. Uh, as your word says, let it be a seed that as they plant, Lord God, it would bring forth good fruit in their life. Uh, Lord, let it bring forth the fruit that they need and the fruit that you desire in Jesus' name. Father, we also pray that as it is a seed that you would give myself, my wife, and our leadership team wisdom this morning to take that seed and take that money and put it in the, in the right place and use it for the right things, for the carrying forth of your vision and the increase of your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Faith is a big deal. So as we were talking about... Um, during worship, I don't know how familiar, obviously, each and every person is with the Scriptures, but the Scriptures do tell us that underneath our new covenant, everybody say testament. <laughs> this is something that, that, there's a lot of things as a preacher you overlook sometimes because you, you figure that, uh, that they're known or whatever, uh, but in reality, um, I once didn't know this either, and so I shouldn't assume that other people don't know it. It helped me to figure it out once upon a time. We all look at Old Testament, New Testament. We never, I guess, some of us, sometimes we don't consider what that actually means. That word testament means covenant. So um, when I say a new covenant church or New Testament church, I'm literally referring to the idea uh, that is true that the Bible gives us that God transferred uh, one covenant from one covenant over to a new covenant by the blood of Christ. And so we're not underneath the law any longer of the old covenant. That's why you're not required to bring bulls and sheep and goats and stuff to church and we don't sacrifice them and we don't do that because we're not underneath that old covenant. We're underneath a new covenant. It doesn't exclude the old covenant as if it has no truth. It's just transfers basically from law to spirit. Anyway, not really the point of the, of the sermon. Um, but as I was saying during worship, in order to approach even the, the, the essence or the presence of God in any way, shape or form, you had to go through a priest at some point, and sometimes you could go through a prophet or an angel to get a word from God, but to approach where they said his presence dwelt, which was in the Holy of Holies, you had to go through a priest. You had to go through a priesthood. And underneath the New Covenant, the Bible literally tells us that requirement is no more. We all have access to boldly approach the throne of grace. That's why you'll, you'll see there's a little... Um, a little adversity from time to time between the Protestant church and the Catholic church. Protestant meaning any denomination other than Catholicism and Catholicism being Catholicism. It's not that nobody in Catholicism knows Jesus. Of course, that's not the case. It's not that they can't go to heaven. That's, of course, not the case. It's just the difference between having to go through a priest or a priesthood in order to approach God, which is confusing Because even underneath that ceremony, God still speaks to people directly inside the Catholic Church. 
So on one hand, they're being told they have to go through a priesthood. On the other hand, they're like, but God's trying to, trying to, trying to direct me to do something, or God's speaking, or, you know, and so it's even, even if they try to stop it, they can't stop it. So it causes a little bit of confusion because the Bible tells us we are the final high priest was Jesus Christ. That's scripture. The final high priest is Jesus Christ, our great and final high priest. So we approach him directly. And that's our uh, intermediary to God. Does that make sense? Wow. No response. <laughs> Does that make a little bit of sense? Okay. So I was, uh, I was thinking after we, after we got that word there, uh, just kind of got this vision of, of the throne room of God. And it was pretty cool. And this is how I imagine it. Maybe, maybe it'll ring true with you. Maybe it won't. But you do know that one day you're going to walk up before that throne, right? Amen. And you walk up before that great throne of judgment. And I imagine it in a, a, a white hall for some reason in a long building where normally you would see like statues lined all the way up to the throne, the steps that go up to the throne of the can. I don't know if there'll be statues because there are scriptures that are kind of against statues. Uh, so I'll replace those statues with real angels. All right, that's even better. Maybe they're holding swords, blade down, hilt up. That's how I imagine it. Wings spread or not, however you like it. And uh, <laughs> just walking down that long, that long hall. And God the Father sitting in a sort of visible but sort of not visible form. And even if you can't see his face, you know what it looks like. It looks like this. And you're walking, and you're a little bit scared. Remember, the Bible says to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge of fools despise wisdom. So we're walking up that throne, up to that throne, and it's, the Bible says, seek out your own salvation with much fear and trembling. Maybe, you're, maybe you have a little trepidation. Maybe there's a little tremble. You know he loves you. You know he's good. Nothing bad's going to happen. It's just approaching a king. It's a big deal. And it's your first time, unless you're British. And still, you know what I'm saying? So you're, you're approaching the king, and he has this, sitting in his throne, this stoic look. Hard to please, but just. And then at his right-hand side, Jesus stands there, also stoic. And I just imagine as we approach, and we're getting more and more reverent slash fearful, and you stand there and you look up and the father doesn't doesn't change. But all of a sudden you see Jesus go. You smile. And then you're like, you start to smile. And you're like, you don't know what to do. And then Jesus goes, ah, what's up, man? Big hug. Glad you made it. And his father's like. And so he gets done with the thing. And then Jesus is like. And then so you stand there and it's this perfect combination of reverent and stoic yet approachable, right? Of, uh, thank you, Lord. Of uh, whew, godly but friendly, kingly but accepting, Amen. a just brotherhood, you know? I don't know, that's just the thing I was getting. And I thought, it's so, uh, it's so cool. Because today we're talking about faith and the Bible says as we walk down that hallway, as we approach that throne, that 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And even when Jesus Christ himself returns upon the earth, the Bible says he's he's looking for faith. Will he find faith? Actually, a question that is posed. When he returns, will he find faith? Faith also happens to be, I, I, uh, in my opinion, I believe uh, slightly, if not, if not sometimes majorly misunderstood within the body of Christ. I've heard other people make that statement that within the body of Christ that they're concerned that we don't understand faith. And that's a big statement because there's a lot that goes behind that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if you don't understand faith and I don't understand faith, it would then follow that we've never truly pleased God. And that is not my contention. God is so good that even through the lack of your understanding of faith, he's put something in you that allows you to walk in faith. And even though you don't really know necessarily exactly what faith is, or maybe I have a misunderstanding, you have a misunderstanding. God is still pleased with a lot of what we do because we do it in faith, not even understanding that we're what we're doing is, is, is done in faith. God just happens to be that good. I'm going to set you up to do something amazing, even if you don't know what you're doing. So I can give you credit. That's pretty cool. So let's talk a little bit about what, uh, what faith is not. When uh, we go to the faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, to me, this kind of, this kind of lays it out. As that's getting put up on the screen, I want to I read to you what faith is according to Webster's Dictionary. And I want to tell you a secret about Webster's Dictionary. Webster's Dictionary was not created to define Bible terms. Webster is not Hebrew for God, unfortunately. So whenever you open Webster's Dictionary, you're not necessarily getting God's definition of a word. But you are getting a definition, which many times translates into the Americanized definition, and I think this is where we get thrown off. I think this is what causes a lot of problems. I googled uh, faith. Google's this cool website where you search for stuff, you know. Google. There used to be a Googizzle. Anybody ever Googizzle? It's Snoop Dogg's like version of Google. And you Googizzle.com, I don't know if it's still a... And everything, you have to, have, you have to have, add the izzle, hizzle, shizzle on it. And, it. and it comes back that way. It's pretty interesting. Just a little side note, because I know we all Google, and sometimes it gets boring. Spice it up a little bit. Googizzle it. Don't let life get boring. So here in Webster's, uh, yeah, there's, it's probably bad. Don't do that. There's probably bad language or something. I don't know. Um, Webster's Dictionary. Ted, edit that part out of the... Seriously. It says about faith. Faith is... And when I Googled it, this is basically what everybody that's writing about faith in the Bible says. Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. That's word for word. Read that again. Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual uh, apprehension rather than proof. That's interesting. But my Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence, everybody say proof, proof. 
of things not seen. So as much as I love with Mr. Webster, me and Alison Krauss agree he cannot define everything. Yeah, you got that? One person got that. Oh, Mr. Webster can never define the love between your heart and mind, something like that. Super high-pitched voice. I'm not going to try it. You'll you gizzle it later. Okay, so Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Let me tell you what that word substance means in Hebrew. It means substructure, setting, or foundation. Faith is solid. Everybody say solid. solid. It is solidified. It has form. It has mass. It is real, and it is not blind. And we as Christians are not subject just to some type of ethereal belief in something we cannot see, cannot prove, cannot provide evidence for. And when we tell somebody, just take it on faith, I don't have an answer, it's just my faith. I want you to understand this morning, it is not your faith when you don't have an answer. It is not your faith when you don't have evidence. It is your hope, which we spoke about last week. And that's why we did hope first, because it's okay to hope in things that you cannot see. Don read it to us this morning in Sunday school. Other than grace and faith, the Bible also says hope also is part of our salvation. Hope now saves us, the Bible says. We hope in things that we cannot see. Because we hope in things that we do see, then it is no longer hope. Do you have patience to wait for those things that you hope for? The return of Christ. The fact that God exists. You know what's really cool about hope? You can't argue with hope. Barack Obama knew what he was doing. You're going to base it on hope because you can't argue with hope. People are allowed to hope for whatever they want. I hope to get a promotion. Well, I can't argue with that because that means you might not get it or you might get it, and that's absolutely true. I hope this works out. I hope so too. I hope for this. I hope for that. You're not even offering. I mean, when hope, everybody's okay with hope. I hope there is a God. I mean, you run into some jerks and say, well, there's not, whatever. Can't argue with hope. I'm not offering any scientific evidence, and I'm not telling you that you have to hope for it. I'm just saying I hope. It's okay. Faith, however, is something different. Let's read it again. Faith is the substance, substructure, setting, or foundation of things hoped for. So we hope in God. We hope in Christ because we have not seen him. There's a foundation for that hope. Amen. Amen. And that foundation is faith. The evidence, let me read you that word in Hebrew, literally means proof by which invisible things are proven. Of things not seen. Faith is the foundation of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. It's a two-way street, but there is proof. Now, there's a difference between the definition of what faith actually is and then the application of faith. In this definition of faith, I want you to understand this is how faith is built. When you take faith and apply it, you are not applying the actual evidence of God's existence or the validity of the word of God you are applying that confidence that comes with that evidence. So when you walk in faith, you're not walking in evidence, you're walking in what that evidence has built. Your hope has now transferred from a mere uh, hope in something that you, do not, that you are not sure of 
or something that you cannot tell somebody else about or something you cannot prove. It transfers from hope to now faith. You've gone from somebody who has a surface level, uh, mediocre as far as power is concerned, testimony of God, to somebody who has an unshakable, unmovable, undeniable system of belief by which God not only exists, but he is a friend, he is a brother, he is involved, he speaks, he heals, he delivers, he is good, he is all-powerful, he's everywhere at the same time. And there's nothing greater than because you've seen evidence of God working in your life. You've seen evidence of God's handiwork in creation. When you've seen evidence that there is a God, it builds your faith. That's why the Bible says in the book of Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Because the word of God offers us evidence. What type of evidence? Well, in 1965, a group of really nerdy scientists got together and said, hey, guess what? We built this machine and we're going to call it the Kobe Project and we sent it up into the atmosphere so that we could take the temperature of the background radiant of the universe and see uh, whether it's constant or whether it is not. And, and when the evidence came back and when all of the numbers were interpreted, they decided in 1965, hey, guess what we found, guys? The universe has not constantly existed, but due to the increase of the background radiant of the universe itself, it seems like it had a beginning and that it's expanding. And what we hypothesize is that that beginning had to begin with a huge explosion of light. We'll call it the Big Bang Theory. And then some uneducated preacher walked up and said, hey, man, my Bible's always said that right here. Genesis chapter one, verse one and two and three. God said, let there be light. And there was. I don't know why uneducated people talk like that. There are educated people that talk like that, too. But they're masking their education with that accent. And I appreciate that. My point being, that's one little thing. That's one little thing. But there's a million little things. There's proof. This was written by a guy 4,000 years ago on the backside of nowhere with like a, a hammer and a chisel. God said, let there be light. How in the world could he have gotten that right? I want to talk to you about the Christian distinction by faith. Sometimes we try to take our faith and just kind of register that in the back of your mind, file it in the back of your mind about the evidence and the proof, and we'll come back to that. But when we talk about our faith, that's how we define ourselves as Christians. By our faith, right? Our faith in God. When people refer to us, they refer to our faith, don't they? That's the Christian faith. Oh, you're, you're of that faith. Oh, you believe that because of your faith. It's all about faith. Faith, 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 faith. Faith everywhere. And that's good. But we need to understand it. Sometimes as Christians, we like to try to define our Christianity by um, how good of people we are. How well we've got everything put together. We define our levels of Christianity based on our righteousness as if we have any. 
We base our Christianity on how much we do or don't drink. We base our Christianity on how much we do or don't smoke. We base our Christianity on how much we do or do not cuss. We base our Christianity on what we watch and what we don't watch. And these are all parts of Christianity. These are all parts of living for God. But when these become the standards of how Christian we are, we are setting ourselves up for serious defeat. Because I have some breaking news for you that I'm, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but in a lot of churches, it really would be breaking news that would be controversial and would cause contention. And this breaking news is that there are people in this world who live a better life to a higher moral standard based on their own personal discipline than many of us who call ourselves Christians. It does happen. It happens in other religions. It happens in atheism from time to time. It happens with agnostics. If we are pulling out our measuring stick of Christianity and every notch is based on how much we do or do not sin, then we are going to step up to a Goliath one day who does not know God but has a bigger stick. And then we're going to be like, well, what? I, is, I, what? I thought I was so godly. I thought I was so Christian. That is not our Christian distinction, and that is not the distinction of faith. Our distinction is that we believe and testify on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's our distinction as Christians. That's how we measure ourselves. He loved us when we were yet sinners. The first person I can think of that the Bible says verbatim that benefited from faith was Abraham. You can read about him in Hebrews chapter 11. Obviously, you can read about more details of his life in the book of Genesis starting around 15 or 16th chapter. For many chapters through. Abraham was a was an interesting guy. You talk about faithful. Wow, faithful. He was born one nationality. And then God, one of the first things he wanted to do was transfer him and change him into another nationality. That's a big deal. And when he did it, he said, Abraham, he was born a Gentile. And from him, God created the Jewish people, just so you know. He was not Jewish because there was no such thing as Jewish. Jewish was something God invented out of the thin air. There was no Jewish. He called out Abraham, a Gentile man. His name was actually Abram. So he changed his name, Abraham. He changed his nationality to Jewish or Hebrew. He changes his location. And he says, as I'm changing your nationality, so I want you to do. Leave the place where you're at. Leave all your people. And Abraham says, well, okay, where do I go? And he says, I'll tell you when you get there. Wow, okay. He didn't do perfectly with all that, but he did it. That's what I love about faith. He made some mistakes along the way. He went to his dad's house, and God said, don't go to your dad's house. He went to his dad's house, and then God said, okay, you need to leave. But he didn't leave, he stayed. His dad died a little early, so he had to leave. Took his wife with him, kept telling people his wife was his sister. And technically, she kind of was, so it wasn't that big of a lie. But he just didn't tell the whole truth. Made some mistakes along the way, did some things. But God said that he accounted everything to Abraham. He accounted it for righteousness because of his faith. And he's the father, the Bible says, of our faith. In other words, put your measuring stick away. 
God is not impressed with your holiness. God is not impressed with your righteousness. God says your righteousness is as filthy rags. And I'll let you look that up. I'm not even going to explain what that is. And then as we approach him, we testify of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And God says, you have no righteousness to approach me with, but because you believed in faith, I'm going to credit your account and count it to you for righteousness. Based on your faith, but my friends, you have to understand the point of that little rant is that your faith is not based on your goodness or your own righteousness, but on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So we take that idea of faith, and I think a lot of people have at least that much, and we go to Romans chapter 10, and we say, as a man believes in his heart and makes confession with his mouth to salvation. There's some weird noises going on, right? Yeah, I hear the airplane. There's something else. Anyway, stirring up the devil. He doesn't like it. We believe with our heart. Everybody say believe. believe. And we confess with our mouth. We make confession unto salvation. It's called the Roman road. People refer to it as Romans chapter 10. Read that, study it, love it, learn it, eat it, keep it, hang on to it, believe it, share it, and then do it again. It's good. It's very good. And that's good. Believing is good. Everybody say, I believe. believe. Now say it like a Pentecostal preacher. I believe. believe. Wow, some of y'all did it. That's awesome. (laughs) I believe. I believe. There you go. Got to put the uh at the end. Man, you're doing so good. You believe, you believe, you believe in Jesus. That is so good. You believe in God that you're doing so good. Omar, we're done with that part. Okay. You're doing well. You're doing well. Because you believe. And that is good. So I want to take you to a little book called James. So when you read the book of James, the whole thing I, I would suggest, but the second and third chapters will let you know that if you believe, you are now qualified to be a demon. In a nutshell, I'm just trying to put it in, in regular English. This is, the, this is the Pastor Thad version, PTV. It got real dark back there. Why do I say that? Because the book of James tells us, says you believe in one God, you doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Step one, muy bien. However, step dos. I wish I knew how to say step. It would have been cooler. How do you say step in Spanish? Paso. 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 Paso dos. Dos paso. Either way. Okay, paso dos. All right. So now y'all are learning something today. Some of y'all. Paso. Paso dos. Step two. There's more. Mucho. There was a man once upon a time named Smith Wigglesworth. True story. He was, in like an, he, was, uh, he was from England. That's why the weird name. Smith Wigglesworth. Smith Wigglesworth was considered to be the greatest apostle since the apostle Paul. Smith Wigglesworth was a man who had the testimony. Not, uh, this is not uh, blown out of proportion by any means. His testimony, not written by himself, 
was that his foot never hit the sidewalk outside of his front door without any less, I'm sorry, with any less than 50 people being saved that day before he came back home. This was a man that walked so heavily in the spirit of God, the things that he did, the things that God did through him, rather, literally books and books and testimonies and crazy things. I mean, all throughout uh, the entire world have been written. There was a time when Smith Wigglesworth came to America and he was a man that had an amazing healing ministry. He laid hands on people and prayed for them and they would get healed. And then like people that they would they knew got healed just because he prayed for those people. Literally, this is when the New York Times and the Washington Post and papers like that weren't so bent on liberalism that they hated Christianity or anything. Every, the news was just the news, basically. It's the early 1900s. He comes to America, late 1800s, maybe. And he uh, he helps with some other ministries, build some houses of healing that they called them, where they would bring people in instead of hospitals and they would pray for them. I think they did also administer some medication and had actual physical uh, like physicians that were available, but mostly praying and just believing for miracles and healing people. And the newspapers reported that literally by far and away within a certain huge mile radius of wherever he had a healing house was the healthiest portion of the United States populace at the time 20 something verified witnessed resurrections during the time of his ministry new things that were going to happen i mean but he was serious he did crazy things there was a time an old lady came up for prayer uh, because she was having pains in her chest smith wigglesworth uh was vehemently against reading any other book other than the bible and he would never go through anything without reading the Bible. They said every time the man sat down to eat after he finished whatever meal it was, he'd say a little bit from the book and sit back and read until he felt good. And then he'd get up. He personally didn't have any medicine in his house and believed on the word of God. He did die, actually ended up dying of a medical issue, but he knew it and he knew when it was going to happen. And his explanation was basically well, he's not going to live forever. Anyway. My point being, this was the kind of faith he walked in. Lady comes up to him with, with, uh, with a pain in her chest. And it was his belief that anytime somebody was sick or hurting, he didn't ask any questions. It didn't matter to him whether he was wrong or right. It doesn't matter whether I agree with him or not or whether you do. He just made a decision that he wasn't going to talk about it. It was the devil. That's it. Well, maybe it's a gastrointestinal. No, 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 no. That is another name for the devil. Well, I have a headache. No, you have Satan in your head. And I will cast him out. Now, I'm not saying that that is always true, but he didn't, he didn't have time for the semantics. He just wanted to get people healed. True story. Lady walks up. Old lady. I'm talking old lady. Chest pains. Okay, that's serious already. Chest pains are always serious. Add in, like, you know, decently old. That's pretty serious. So she's walking up, and she wants prayer, and she wants him to pray for her chest pains because, you know, pretty sure they're going to go away. He starts praying, and he is adamant that it's the devil that's doing it. True story. He rears back and, and wants to punch the devil out of her chest. He rears back and punches her right in the right in the breastplate, right here, right in the bone. Just lay, and she's like, you know, I mean, she got laid out because a man, full-grown man, just punched her, little old lady. So the people in the crowd are like, oh, OMG. I don't think they said that back then, but something like that. Like, what just happened? Ladies laid out on the ground. He just punched her. He's Smith Wigglesworth. They're pretty sure if they 
get angry at him, angels are going to come out of heaven and destroy everybody. So they're like, they don't know what to do. Lady, lady gets up, shakes it off. Oh my, I do feel better. Good. She got healed. No bruises, no soreness. She didn't feel like somebody punched her. That's just how he operated. So you had to be careful with this guy. Took another old lady out of a wheelchair, grabbed her arms around his shoulders and ran around. She couldn't walk and she wanted to walk. Ran around the sanctuary and made her run, her feet on the ground while he was running. People freaking out. And he's like, I'm going to let go. I'm going to let go. And she's like, no, don't let go. I'm going to let go. People are like, don't let go. He lets go and she stumbles a little bit and then follows him. It, do you know that if you did that with a little bit of doubt in your mind, first of all, you wouldn't do it? You know what I'm saying? If you're like, well, there's a possibility that if I let this lady, if I run and let her go, she, I don't know, but nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. He did it because he had zero doubt. They wanted him to write books about how he was able to believe the way that he was able to believe God at the level of his faith. All of the, they wanted the in-depth. What did he know about the word? Give it to me in Greek. Give it to me in Hebrew. Give it to me in your mind. Put the scriptures together. Do something for us to unlock the secret of how you got to where you're at. And he wrote a book and he titled it, Just Believe. And if you read the whole thing, by the end of it, the secret you would have learned is that you should just believe. It's not that deep. I read it and I was a little disappointed. I was like, Smith, come on, man. You basically just put it on me. In a really nice way, you said, you don't believe God enough. Well, I certainly ain't doing that to any old ladies. So he's at a, another, another level. That's fine. My point is, he said, just believe. You said, you believe. James says, the devils believe. So where, what are we missing? What are we missing? How do we bridge that gap between Smith Wigglesworth just believe and our testimony that we do believe and James's word in the Bible that believing's not enough? I want to submit to you a Latin theology they call Notita ascensus, where's the third word? Fiducia. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. The first Latin term, and this is an explanation of faith. It's not the explanation, but it's one that I like, and it's going to lead us to a certain place. The first word, the notita, means believing in the data or the information. It's an intellectual awareness. It's what a lot of us have. You cannot have faith in nothing. There has to be content to the faith. Amen. You have to believe something or trust someone. When we say that a person is saved by faith, some people say it doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you are sincere. But that is not what the Bible teaches. It matters profoundly what you believe. So first of all, if you want to understand faith, you need to be able to answer that question within yourself. What do I believe? I'll give you an answer that I hope you agree with that you can keep with you that's easy to remember. I believe, can we make a pledge together? Only if you're a believer, say this with me. I promise you won't be upset that you said it. I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way to the Father but through Him. 
Congratulations. So we do believe. We have data. We have content. You have to believe the right information. The second aspect aspect is what they call a census or intellectual assent. I must then be persuaded of the truthfulness of the content. That's very true. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where everybody's at. But there are many, many people that KSBJ, God bless them, are happy to write in on their docket that they had 232 salvations today because they played, I can only imagine, for the 7,342,000th time. And 200, I love that song and I love KSBJ, just making jokes here. They have events and they literally, people come up and they write how many people come up and we had this many salvations today. And that's good. It's a good testimony. But a week later, we're not sure how many of those people are still hanging on. Two weeks later, we don't know where they're at. Because they did agree to believe in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. But did they make the ascent to accept the truthfulness of what they believe? According to James, even if I'm aware of the work of Jesus, convinced intellectually that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross for my sins, and that he rose from the dead, I would at that point once again qualify to be a demon. The demons recognize Jesus, the devil himself knows the truth of Christ, but he does not have faith unto salvation. True story, yes. The crucial, most vital element of saving faith in the biblical sense is of personal trust. Everybody say personal trust. The final term, fiducia, referring to a fiduciary commitment by which I put my life in the hands of Christ. I trust him alone for my salvation. That is the crucial element. It includes intellectual, mental, emotional, but it goes beyond into the heart and to the will so the whole person is caught up in this experience that we call faith. Faith is not a noun. Faith is a verb. Faith is an action word. Everybody say, now, now. faith is. Faith is. Faith is. Faith is right now. It's a right now word. It's an action word. It doesn't live in the past and it's not hiding away in the future. It is a present term. Faith right now is. Based on the evidence you've seen, based on God moving in your life, you've gone from hope and you've gone into faith. Based on your experience, you now have something stronger than just believing in something invisible. You have a foundation. You have a foundation to who you are. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That statistical probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even eight out of 300 prophecies is one in over 100 trillion. So if you need numbers, that's pretty good evidence. There are still 292 more that we have to explain after we've already hit one in a trillion odds. That's not from a a preacher. That's from a mathematician. That's pretty legit. We'll move into the second part of the end of our sermon. That your faith is not something that remains constant. Everybody say, help me, Lord. Lord. Thank you, Jesus. 
I was going to ask earlier if anybody was cold. I'm really, really hot right now. So if you're cold, just suffer. It's okay. Your faith, my friend, is constantly put on trial. Your faith is always subject to being tried. Your faith is always subject to being tested. The next new thing that happens, let me, uh, let me ask you this question. How much does this shake you, if any? When you open up your, your internet or wherever it is you get your news and you see that scientists are convinced that this new planet they found within this new solar system has just the right atmosphere and just the right distance from its central star to sustain life, and they are absolutely 100% sure that we are about to find a planet that also has life on it other than the planet Earth. For some people, they could care less. Other people that maybe are a little bit more interested in science, all of a sudden you have to start answering questions. Well, what if that other intelligent life is out there? Who is their God? How come we don't know them? Where are they at in the Bible? How do we explain that? Every month now, they're, they're 100% positive they're going to find this God particle that they're searching for. You might have never heard of it. If you have, you have to answer certain questions in your head. What does that mean for me? Your faith is going to be tested. Let me get one that hits a little bit closer to home. Say Jose is, is a good friend or a relative of mine. And Jose is a believer and I'm not. And Jose is trying to get me to believe in God. And he's telling me that, man, God is good. He's just so good. You got to give your life over to him. He loves you. He loves everybody. God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. God created you. God deserves your worship. God deserves to get to know you. And you deserve to get to know God. You just need to repent and ask him into your heart and come into a relationship with God. And maybe I'm getting close and I'm hearing about this good God. And then my son gets cancer. And then I say, well, Jose, where's your good God? Oh, he's so good. He loves me so much. I just need to give my life to him. He likes to torture kids. He was a little bored and he said, hey, cancer should be fun. Somebody's baby dies. Somebody's sister gets violated. Things happen. How do we explain then? Faith gets tested. Constantly under testing. Constantly under trial. Constantly going to happen. Well, we could sit in churches on Sundays and act like it never happens. And we're always going to be good. And we're never, ever going to be shaken in our faith with God. And I hope that's true. But man, you have to explore how deep your foundation runs because the devil is going to test you and God is going to allow it and things are going to happen. And if your conception of faith, this is where we're going to change your conception of faith real quick. Or I'm going to present it and I hope that at least you'll consider it. Are you with me? Can you pay attention like we just started? All right, I promise not to go for another 30 minutes. So just pay attention like we just started. This is where things are going to change. Because our pillars of faith right now, man, they've got big churches and nice clothes. Our pillars of faith, they drive nice vehicles. Our pillars of faith, they look good, they smell good, they got their act together, they got all their limbs working, everything is going right, they have great marriages, beautiful kids, everybody loves them. Our pillars of faith in Christianity, they are something to behold. They are people to look at. They are people to admire. They are people we want to be like. Man, they write books, they write songs. 
They smile in the mirror and their hair fixes on its own. I've seen it happen. Not really, but in my head. Pillars of faith. They got it together. You know who was a pillar of faith in the Bible? A guy named Peter. Pillar of faith. Man, Peter had it all together. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was the man. He was tough. He was the lead fisherman. He had the testimony. He was the guy. He was like Jesus' right-hand man. Peter had it all together. He was amazing. Peter stepped out of the boat and walked on water. Peter was the only one that followed him into the trial. Peter was the guy. Oh, yeah. After he walked on the water for a few seconds, he almost drowned. Forgot about that part. That's right. After he, after he followed into the trial, he then denied Jesus three times. That's right. After that, he didn't think he was even worthy to be a disciple. Forgot about that. He was so not worthy to be a disciple that when Christ was resurrected and he ran to the tomb, the message for Peter, the message for the disciples were that Jesus said, tell the disciples and Peter to come and do this. Wasn't even included. But Christ knew that he had to single him out because he had had mentally removed himself from discipleship because he wasn't worthy. Pillar of faith. Pillar of faith. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Wherein greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise, honor, and glory in the appearing of Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Wherein greatly rejoice. That's misleading. Wherein greatly rejoice because right away I want to get charismatic with it. Yes, that's the word of God. I will greatly rejoice. I am more than a conqueror by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am the head and not the tail. I am a son of God. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He calls me friend. He loves me. He will never forsake me. I've got the Holy Spirit. I will rejoice. Though now for a season, let's rejoice for a season. Let's clap our hands. Let's rejoice. You are in, you are in, you are, you are in what? You are in heaviness through manifold temptations. All of a sudden, that's not very fun to clap to. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's a different kind of faith. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. How many of you have ever heard somebody that was a Christian say or have said it yourself, and you don't have to raise your hand because you should all raise your hand? that 
It doesn't make sense that I'm going through this when I love God. I I have no, let's just be real. We have no misconceptions that we're going to live forever. Okay, we're all going to die one day. We know that. Some of us are overweight. Some of us are underweight. Some of us are around chemicals all day. Some of us don't eat right. Some of us do whatever. So we all know there's multiple reasons why we might end up sick. We don't have to blame God. We can get sick on our own. It's fine. Whatever. We know people are always going to let us down, so we're not expecting our lives to be perfect. But every once in a while, things add up. Something happens that just is not right. And you think to yourself, despite the fact that I try to be real about this thing, I honest to God do not understand what in God's name is going on right now. Why? What did I do? What did I do? Why am I going through this? I've given my life to God. I love God. I serve God. Why do there have to be so many things, as Don said this morning? Why do there have to be so many things? I'm not asking for it to be perfect. Can I just get a little help? You don't have to make it 85 degrees outside. Can you just send a little breeze while I'm standing out here in 110? Just a little breeze? I mean, I've given you my life. I'm asking for some breeze. That's all we want sometimes. Why? Peter says in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is the trial. As though some strange thing has happened unto you. Why isn't that verse on a bumper sticker somewhere? I've never seen that t-shirt. And that's too bad. Because nobody ever considered stopping serving God because of blessings. Nobody ever got upset because God is good. That's on our bumper stickers. That's on our t-shirts. That is our motto. But Peter said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing just happened unto you. Faith, my friends, does not exempt you from tragedy and tribulation. Faith does not exempt you from tragedy and tribulation. Paul got beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. James, no, Philip, I believe, was shot multiple times in the back with arrows on a hill while he was testifying. Some of the early church fathers got thrown into the Colosseum with the lions. Others got burned alive. Some were doused and drowned in boiling oil. And they didn't have an easy time getting to that point. We're not having to go through any of that. But can I share with you a little secret about your faith? You want to know what faith is? Faith is not the little jig you dance after God heals you of your cancer. Faith is not swinging from chandeliers. Faith is not everybody falling out in tongues with interpretation. Faith is not casting out demons. Faith is not watching God do the work. Faith is not everything becoming easy. But I think Paul had it right when he basically said, you want to know about your faith? 
You'll never know about your faith until you find yourself in a good fight. Then you'll figure out about your faith. Careful what you pray for. God, increase my faith. Let me introduce you to a blind man. John chapter 9. To get Ted to put it on the screen, I didn't write it down. Starts in the pretty much in the first verse. John chapter 9. This is a this is a unique healing of Jesus Christ. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was blind? Change. Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said unto him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and he came back seeing. Wow, that's a cool story for a lot of reasons. You can keep reading as Ted keeps changing the scriptures. That's a cool story. I want to break something down for you real quick. There's two things that stand out to me about that story. The disciples and our worship team, go ahead and come up. The disciples saw this blind man and they knew that he had been blind from birth. And so they asked Jesus, why is he blind? They all have their sight, by the way. So just, why is this man blind and I, I'm not? Is it his sin? Is it his mom's sin? Is it the way he dresses? Is it his haircut? I'm not blind. These are actually not even real. I'm good. I'm good. Um, and Jesus says, uh, no, it's not his sin and it's not his mom's sin. He is blind so that the works of God may be manifest in him. And it strikes me right away that there must have been people standing next to this blind man. He had neighbors, right? Thus the title, the blind man's neighbor. So if sin has nothing to do with it and circumstance has nothing to do with it, why was he made blind instead of his neighbor? So God knew uh, that he was going to be there that day, apparently. I can, I can live with that. But he also knew all the hundreds of other people were going to be there that day. So why this guy, if sin doesn't have anything to do with it? Why this guy? Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing just happened to you. 
but greatly rejoice. The trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I used to wonder when I was younger why some people that I knew had autistic kids. Why some people that we know have special needs children. Why some people that we know go through grievous injuries. Why some people are wheelchair bound. Why some people have cerebral palsy. Why some people don't have limbs, don't have arms, don't have legs. How some people are able to serve God and love God despite those things. Okay, at the end of the day, we're all equal as far as souls go. And not everybody that could love God does love God. That goes with well people and sick people. But inside of Christianity, I'm just talking about inside of Christianity, why do some people suffer through things and other people seem like they never do? They don't have to. If Jesus Christ was standing right here, I'd love to ask him that question. Is it their sin? Or is it their parents' sin? Sorry, one second. And I believe he would say, it's, it's not anybody's sin. So that the works of God can be manifest in us. Which means what? There's something about their faith that they're able to withstand this fiery trial. Don't look on them as less than. Don't think I love them less because you and your people dance jigs when God heals stomach aches and stuff. I mean, that's all good. Unfortunately, you need you need that to stick with me. But some of these other people I can make examples out of to the whole world. Because some people walk by a mentally challenged person for the umpteenth time and realize they've never seen them not smiling. And that's enough for them to believe in God. Some people see a wheelchair-bound preacher who loves God and can't stop preaching. They don't even know what he's saying, but that's enough. That's enough for them to believe in God. Some people see that guy that goes around as an evangelist right now. He has no arms and no legs. Nick something, I think. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I'm good to see him in person one time. He sits there on stage, no arms, no legs, has has like you know some skin where things should be that he can move around or whatever and and just he makes fun of himself it's incredibly uncomfortable because you're like oh no 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 i'm not gonna i'm not gonna laugh at you making fun of your that you don't have limbs but he's real funny so it's hard not to you don't know what to do i don't remember anything that he said but i remember after i left i loved god more but i don't think i could do it and that's why I have my arms and legs. Because I don't know if my faith could withstand that. <sighs> Paul said, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, around verse 7 or 8, I only wrote down verse 9, but Paul's asking God, he's explaining to people 
in Corinth, he's explaining to us in the Bible. He said as he went around preaching and evangelizing that he was given a thorn in his flesh. That's just a metaphor. We don't know exactly what was going on with him, but he called it a thorn in his flesh. And he prayed to God three times that he would remove that. Why would Paul have the audacity to ask God to remove that? Maybe because Paul's already been stoned to death, shipwrecked a few times, cast out, cast in, stripped down, completely beat halfway to death and gone through more trials and tribulations in a week than most of us will ever go through in our entire life. So he had this little thing and he's like, God, as I'm, as I'm running around getting my head absolutely kicked in for your gospel, could you help me with this one deal here? This one thorn in my flesh that I can't seem to get rid of. And God says, Paul, my grace is sufficient. Paul had the testimony that he had all faith. Knew all mysteries, knew all things. He asked God to remove this thorn and God said, my grace is sufficient. In other words, what he's saying is, Paul, I've called you out to glorify myself in you. And Paul's like, I know if I could just get like some better suits. If I could get like a bigger platform, if I could get in this new building, if I could if I could get the right people, if I could get on TV, if if I could get 12 100,000 more views on my YouTube channel. I could really glorify you even more, God. I really could. You can make me rich and I won't stop preaching. I'll glorify you. And God says, you don't understand. It wasn't his sin and it wasn't his mom's sin. The rest of verse 9 says, my strength, God says, is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Man, I thought faith was supposed to deliver us from all things. But God says, listen, listen, people of faith. I think sometimes you miss the point. I think every once in a while you begin to forget the purpose of this life, although I am a God of blessings, is not that you should be ultimately prosperous. If I can be glorified in that, yes, great and amazing. But the ultimate goal of this life, once you've given yourself to me and you've handed your will over to me, the point of this life is to glorify me so that more people will see me and come to know me and I can save everybody from this wretched place, not teach them how to live comfortably in this wretched place. So I'm not going to bring a lot of glory to myself by showing the world that you don't go through any trials and tribulations, that you never get tested, because then your faith is weak. Anybody can believe in somebody that gives them everything and yet never have a personal relationship. But there's this hole inside of people. And as much as they think they want $100 million, it's not going to solve the problem. But that little autistic kid with the smile that's a mile wide, that might do it. That might get their attention. I really wanted to go into one more thing 
and it's really cool. No, it's not. It's not a time issue. I know you guys would be cool with it, but I think I, I think it would. I don't know. I just don't think it would fit anymore. So we'll maybe try it next week. Sorry to do that to you. <laughs> God is good. Amen. Amen. Just stand to your feet with me, real quick. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. So what I hope we've learned over these past two weeks, and uh, we're going to worship here, and then we're going to dismiss, is that faith has substance and faith has evidence. Right? But hope, hope doesn't necessarily. And just FYI, if you're a person that studies on your own, there are a couple of times in the New Testament where the Greek word for hope is, in, is written in the King James as faith and vice versa. So if it doesn't make sense to you, make sure you look it up. Because they seem to be that interchangeable. Hope does not need evidence. Hope does not need proof. And I'm glad for the hope that is in you. God just puts that there and you just decide to latch on to it. And within the Christian and within the Christian world, that is a great thing. But for your life as a whole, <clears throat> you need that faith. You need substance. You need security. You need evidence. And it's not just physical proof, but it's the evidence of what God has done in your life. Don't let the devil fog up the mirror. When you see your reflection, you know. It might have been 15 years ago, but you know what God did. It might have been 25 years ago, but you know what God did. It might have been 15 minutes ago, but you know what God did. Don't let that mirror get foggy. Don't let that testimony die. That is also evidence. It's written in you. You put your faith in that, and that makes that proof. That makes that fact. That makes that true. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. We're going to talk about that next week. I hope uh, studying faith and studying hope has helped you a little bit. Don't miss next week as we study love. Bring somebody. Read up on your own. Uh, walk it out. Try to love people this week. That'd be crazy. Let's love people. And then we'll come here next week and we'll learn about love. That'd be interesting. Let's do that. God is good. Amen.